You can go from church to church, and sooner or later you will find a pastor who will agree with you on your particular view about divorce. But for a few minutes, let's try and lay aside our preconceived ideas and go back to the first century. Try to understand God's heartbeat as we examine the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. Let's join Dave Wurtson as we introduce our theme, The Permanence of the Marriage Bond. Paul's first discussion after the end of chapter 6 where he talked to the Corinthians about problems with immorality, specifically going to prostitutes, the Apostle Paul said that God's answer for sexual passion is not to go to a prostitute, not to be involved in immorality, but instead to find fulfillment in the marriage relationship. In fact, we learned last week that sexual fulfillment in a marriage is not just a so-so thing, and it's a command by the Lord, one of the most gracious commands that the Lord gave us. We learn that the only reason that a couple can refrain from enjoying their full conjugal rights was if they decided together a mutual decision, not something the husband decided or a wife decided, but something they decided on together, that for a short time they wanted to devote themselves to prayer. And so during that time, for a special stress, maybe a special burden of prayer, they can separate from one another in the sexual way. But, Paul says, specifically because of the threat of temptation, because we're in a satanic warfare, and obviously we can see how intense the satanic warfare is in this area, Paul says that married couples need to come together again, fulfill their conjugal rights to one another, so that they will not be tempted by the evil one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, in verse 10, turns to another question. It has to do with the permanence of the marriage bond. Evidently, some of the Corinthians, in the passage we talked about last week, had decided that they would stay married now that they had become believers, but that they would no longer enjoy sexual relations together as a married couple. Paul says that is against the teaching of the Holy God. The Lord God created that sexual relationship, and it is not good for the Corinthians to decide that though they're married, they're not going to enjoy sexual relationships. Probably in the next verses that we're dealing with, in verses 10 and following, another problem developed among the Corinthians. Evidently, some of the Corinthians decided that they were not only going to stop having sexual relationships in their marriage, but they were going to dissolve their marriages. They were going to divorce because there was a tendency in Corinth and it developed very strongly in the second century and it's come all the way down to the Christian church today that somehow it is more holy to be celibate. And so it's very possible that some of the Corinthians decided we've come to Christ, we're going to dissolve our marriages because it's more holy to be celibate, to be single like that. Now, Paul, at the end of our discussion last week, stressed that singleness is a gift, marriage is a gift, but after you've become married, is not the time to decide that you have the gift of celibacy. And that's what the Corinthians were failing to discern. And there we begin reading in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. To the married... 
And Paul would be talking about married believers. To the married believers, I give this command. I know he's talking to married believers because in verse 12, he says, now to the rest, and he talks about a believer who's married to an unbeliever. And that little phrase, the rest, in Paul's writings often refers to unbelievers. So in verse 10, we're speaking to married, believing couples, two believers that are married together. Paul says this, I give this command, not I. This isn't just teaching that I am giving a new command in the church, but this is a command that the Lord himself gave in his earthly ministry. That's what Paul means when he says, not I, but the Lord. Now, he's not saying that his authority doesn't count. In fact, the apostle, as an apostle, would view his teaching as being just as authoritative as the teaching of Christ. But he's calling attention to the reality that he knows that Jesus Christ himself spoke to this problem of believers' divorce in his earthly ministry. And so he highlights that tradition that came down to him. When we get to verse 12, we're going to have some verses where the Apostle Paul gives further instruction some further commands about a situation that Jesus didn't deal with in his earthly ministry. So it's not a question where Paul is saying, what I'm telling you now, because it's a command of the Lord, is really authoritative. But what I tell you when it's just what I say, that's not authoritative. That's not at all the drift and the meaning of Corinthians. Paul is simply reminding the Corinthians that this was an area they should have already known about because Jesus Christ, the earthly Jesus, taught about this area. Now, what did Jesus teach about the marriage relationship of believers? He says this, a wife must not separate from her husband. I want to say that again. A wife must not separate from her husband. Whenever we begin to talk about divorce between believers, we need to begin with the Lord's command that believers are not to get divorced. The Lord repeated that over and over again. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. The Lord had just had a debate with the Pharisees over the question of divorce. In Judaism of the first century, there was an intense debate that was going on over the issue of divorce. It was very similar to our own day. In fact, if you were to go to different churches, I promise you anything that you want to do in the question of divorce, you can find some pastor, some church that will teach you exactly what you want to do. In other words, there's a lot of debate and a lot of times the debate is carried out over a very legal discussion. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees, there were two schools of thought. There was the school of Shammai, which said, if you found some uncleanness in the woman, some Levitical impurity, some type of cultic thing that was wrong with the wife, then you could divorce her. Immorality would be one of those in the school of Shammai. The school of Philel in Deuteronomy 24 went down to the next verses which said if the wife displeases her husband. And he argued that anything that displeased the husband was ground for divorce. In other words, the school of Philel had a very liberal divorce law. 
Some of the rabbinic writings will picture a wife who uh, just destroys her husband's breakfast, makes his eggs wrong, and he gets mad and throws her out. She displeases him. And so the school of Philal had a very liberal divorce law. Some of you wives are saying, horrors, I burn eggs every time. And uh, it was very, very free and easy divorce in the school of Philal. The school of Shammai was much stricter, but what Jesus was bringing out to the Jewish leaders is that they still carried out the debate in a spirit of rules and regulation. Something that I want you to understand in your life. You don't deal with questions about marriage and about divorce from a spirit of, I know what I want to do, and I'm going to find out a way to do it. And I'm going to find out some rule that will cover my situation. That's not at all the way you make decisions with the Lord. What I'm concerned about in every one of your hearts and in my own heart is where is your heart in regard to the Lord? You see, the issue is not, well, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. I can go ahead and do it. That's not the issue. The issue is, am I in love with my father? Is he the most important one to me? And that attitude of heart of devotion to God causes us not to debate, well, is this grounds or is that grounds? But it causes us to ask, what is the heart of the Lord? And Jesus always begins his interaction with the Pharisees over what is the heart of the Father? And everybody needs to understand that the heart of God, the ideal plan of God, the way things were in the Garden of Eden, was no divorce. It was one man and one woman for life. And Jesus always begins there. He always begins with that divine heart for the permanence of the marriage bond. Now, why does God say that? Because he loves you. He loves children. And he wants children to grow up in that kind of permanence. Children should never even have to wonder about the permanence of their mom and dad's relationship. We live in a society in the unbelieving world where divorce is the norm. Just listen to your kids talking at school. It's just an accepted part of their life. And a lot of times there's talk well, it doesn't really make any difference. You know, now mom is happier, now dad is happier. Everything's going to work out as if there's no pain in that. Nobody really believes that deep in their heart. Now, divorces take place. We're going to find out there can be innocent victims in divorce. I also want to understand that there's always forgiveness available. I don't want anybody to feel like if you've gone through a, a, a situation like that, I'm not coming down on you this morning. But if you're really forgiven, if you're really understanding what life in Christ is about, it'll renew your love and your heart and your desire for the ideal. And Jesus always begins the permanence of the marriage relationship. And so what the Lord Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, he says, anyone in verse 11 who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. What Jesus says in both Mark and in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, that if a person divorces and if they marry somebody else, they break the seventh commandment. It's a command against adultery. And Jesus says if a person divorces and then marries somebody else, 
they commit adultery. Now, Jesus in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 does give an exception. He does give an exception. There's a lot of debate over that exception. Let's look at Matthew 19 because that's the fullest discussion. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus begins, it's the same context as Mark chapter 10. And Jesus in Mark chapter 19 is carrying out the same debate with the Pharisees. He begins with the ideal. And then they go on to question him about why did Moses give the command of divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And the Lord Jesus said that that command was given because of the hardness of the human heart. And then he goes on to say this. In verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. That's that ideal. I tell you, now here's the Lord's teaching, that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now here we have the exact same words that we have in Luke pretty much. Same idea. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and vice versa if a wife were divorced her husband. But he adds an exception clause in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And there's been a whole lot of debate about this exception clause. Does it mean, for example, like Joseph and Mary, where a girl was, they thought the girl was immoral before they were married. And so we have the case where Joseph wants to put her away during the espousal period. And so some have argued that what the word that's used here for immorality means is a girl that's betrothed to a man and in Jewish circles, that was a legal marriage, even though it hadn't been consummated yet. And then if you were to find out that that betrothed had been immoral, then that would be a ground for not carrying out the marriage. In our day, we don't have that kind of betrothal situation, so that exception clause wouldn't apply at all to today. I have very good friends, people I love dearly, who sincerely from their heart believe that that is the meaning of the exception clause. Personally, I don't. The reason I don't is that it's a very restrictive use of the Greek word that's used here. It would not at all be a common use. It would be a very narrowing of the range that that word could mean. Also, Jesus stresses the one flesh ideal. He talks about, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis 2.24, which is a stress upon the sexual relationship. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talks about it. Even if you join with a prostitute in sexual relationship, there's a one flesh relationship that takes place there. Not a marriage, but there's a union, a one flesh relationship. Sexual immorality is a serious serious breach of the marriage covenant. And I believe that Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 is calling attention to that. Mark and Luke, you see, Jesus in this debate is not trying to give us all the exceptions and all the different nuances. He's trying to get us to think about the Father's priorities. In Mark chapter 10 Luke chapter 16, those two Gospels just present the ideal. No exceptions. But Jesus is not intending in those verses to give us all the possibilities that could take place in a marriage. He doesn't intend for us to read it that way. In Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus does go on to talk about the brokenness that can take place 
when there's immorality in a marriage. So what Jesus says is that one of the exceptions, if a man divorces his wife and marries another woman because there was immorality, then that man is not committing adultery or vice versa. If a wife divorces her husband because of immorality and she marries somebody else, she's not committing adultery. She doesn't break the seventh commandment. Now, Jesus is not saying that that has to take place that a marriage has to dissolve, that it has to end. In fact, in Hosea, we have a marvelous story of God the Father symbolically being married to an immoral woman. He has to divorce her because of her immorality. But then he waits and he waits and he waits. And in the end, there's a glorious, bittersweet renewal. And the whole thing ends in a beautiful sweetness. And it's a message of forgiveness. And so the Bible's not teaching us that if there's immorality in a marriage, that it has to dissolve it, but the text is recognizing that it can dissolve it. So I want you to see these things. The Lord's exception. Immorality does not have to end a marriage, but it can. I also want to stress that immorality should not be tolerated in a marriage. It should not be treated lightly in a marriage. In our day, you have to say that. Because many times an immoral person will want to carry out an immoral lifestyle. But they want to have the legitimacy of their relationship in their marriage. In other words, you'll have a husband that wants to go out and play the field. And he just wants the wife to tolerate it. And vice versa. One of the things I think that Jesus' exception clause would say to us is don't tolerate that. You say, why not? Because it's the most unloving thing you can do for a partner that's living in unrepentant, hardened sin. Now, I'm not talking about a one-night stand, a temptation that was yielded to, and the person is very repentant, and they come back to the Lord Jesus and they want renewal. That's a totally different situation. And all these situations vary. But Jesus would be saying, if you're in a relationship where your partner is flagrantly and unrepentantly immoral. Don't tolerate it. It's not loving to tolerate that. It's not loving. Because that behavior will go on, go on, and go on. And I would also say in our own culture, with the AIDS problem, you're risking your life. You're playing Russian roulette. If you live in the New York area, about 85% of the prostitutes have the AIDS virus. So if I were preaching in a church in northern New Jersey and a man or a woman was being immoral in their relationships, you would be playing Russian roulette with your own life. And your partner that was involved in immorality would be playing Russian roulette. In fact, it's worse than Russian roulette because at least you got a one in six chance with a six shooter. But 85 percent is not even close to that. You understand what I'm saying? Now, it doesn't have to dissolve a marriage. But being strong and recognizing how immorality does attack a marriage, recognizing that can often be used by the Spirit of God to get an unrepentant, hardened sinner to wake up and get help. And having that kind of strength and that kind of confrontation is one of the only ways in order to get help. Now, Paul says that he's repeating what the Lord Jesus says. Only in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, he gives an exception. 
He says this, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again. The Lord Jesus gave the exception of immorality, but the stress was on the permanence of the marriage bond. Paul is continuing that same stress, but he says in verse 11, but if she does, or if he does, if there is a divorce, and I would believe that Paul is recognizing the hardness of heart. One of the things that's tragic, but it's true of our human existence, is that we have feet of clay. And Paul is not a theologian who's teaching in a seminary somewhere where he can just ideally and theoretically and abstractly deal with a problem. He's a pastor that has to deal with flesh and blood living problems. So he says there's an ideal. No divorce among believers. But then he says, if there is a divorce, and now he's going to give us instruction about that area. Suppose there is a divorce among believers. What should happen then? He says this, but if she does, if there is a divorce, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And I believe that we could go on to say, but if he is, then he is to remain single or else be reconciled to his partner. Paul is picking up the same stress against breaking the seventh commandment. The exception clause in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 would not come under this clause that Paul is saying. What Paul is talking about is other divorces, not because of immorality, but because it didn't work out, because the personality conflict became too strong. He's not stressing at all that divorce should take place, but he's saying if it does, because of the hardness of heart, then two believers that get divorced like that, those two believers might not be able to work out their marriage but if they get divorced, then they're to remain single or else be reconciled. There is destructive power in adultery. It cannot be swept under the covers and forgotten about. Anger, bitterness, rejection, living with someone who is hardened in their rejection of Christ's love and will can become unbearable. The Apostle Paul does deal with these tough real-life situations and gives us wisdom that still applies today. Maybe some of you find yourselves in the kinds of situations Dave mentioned today. It is imperative that you find the heart of God revealed in His Word about these matters. It would be helpful to be able to slowly work through this material again with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 open in front of you. Dave does not sidestep the hard questions in this discussion, and he's not asking you to agree with his interpretation, but he is asking you to listen carefully to what is taught in this strategic section of 1 Corinthians. Be sure to catch part two next time.